Greetings and welcome to another Different Church Podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this intro on a Tuesday night at 1020. Normally I try and do these on Sunday night so they are ready to go and ready to be listened to on Monday morning. But this week was a little crazy. As you may know, the way we started our church, uh, we currently have zero full-time employees. Um, all of us are working other jobs, and I think that was a really cool way to start a church. Um, but sometimes that means, uh, you know, things happen and we can't get things done in a timely manner always. So forgive me. Uh, one really cool announcement. I know I just said we started the church with zero full-time employees. However, thank you so much to you for all that you have given to the vision of different church. And because of that, we are actually bringing on our first full-time employee in June. That's right. Pastor Hannah is going to be full-time and we are so pumped for that. It's going to mark a really cool new chapter at different church. And uh, we just can't thank you enough. Just have a couple brief announcements for you before we jump into the message. Um, another thing that we tried to do when we started different is uh, a lot of us came from a background where um, church asked a lot of the volunteer, which is okay. Like, I don't think that's wrong. It's it's just a style of church. And um, we tried to ask a little bit less. Uh, if you want to be involved, we try and make the barrier of entry very easy. Uh, you can just jump in, you know, once a month to volunteer, something like that. So with that being said, uh, we're growing to the point where we need some more volunteers. So if you were interested in jumping into tech team, greeting, setup, nursery, any of that stuff, we would love to have you just go to diff.church and you can sign up there. Or shoot us an email uh, at hello at diffchurch.com. So that is diff.church if you just want to sign up directly or email us hello at diffchurch.com. While you are at diff.church, we would love your feedback. Um, we would love to hear what we're doing that you really are enjoying. We would love to hear what you would like to see more of. Um, also from there, you can donate. That's the best way to kind of help Diff Church um, if you really love what we're doing. And if you want to help uh, be a part of giving back to our community. And also you can sign up for the mailing list if you aren't on the mailing list. It's uh, Diff.Church is kind of the best way to stay connected with what we're doing. Uh, okay, let us jump into the message. This past Sunday was really cool. We had uh, actually two, the past two weeks in a row, we've had a bunch of first time visitors. So huge shout out to you if that is you. Thank you so much for all that you're uh, doing and for believing in what we're doing. It just, it means so much to show up on a Sunday morning and have a nice full room. Um, it's really cool. Um, anyway, we talked a little bit about uh, Doubting Thomas, and so we're going to call this one Thomas No Doubt. Has anyone heard of Doubting Thomas? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Uh, we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to jump in, just like we normally do. So you can follow along on the screen. This is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. It says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. And one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, wasn't with the others. 
And they told him, we have seen the Lord. And he replied, I won't believe it. Unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them, gross, <laughs> and place my hand in the wound on his side, gross. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then to Thomas, he said, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Now, y'all know I like some background. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. He was nicknamed the twin, which really makes me question, like, who was he twinning with? <laughs> Did he have an actual twin? I don't know. We don't know. It's just an odd little tidbit that's included in the Bible. So there's like 11 disciples together in a room. They locked the doors. It was dangerous out there. Jesus had just been crucified after all. There's high likelihood authorities were going to come looking for them. And I've actually heard a lot of sermons about how the disciples were cowering in fear behind locked doors. And how could they, after Jesus had been crucified, what a bunch of dumb disciples, how could they not just go out and proclaim the word of God from every street corner? Okay, but wouldn't you also be behind a locked door? Like, just let's think about this first. Let's say we're just meeting together every Sunday. Like, we just love to get together. People don't like us, but it's okay. You know, it hasn't been too terrible. There's been some unrest, but we're fine. We get to meet together every Sunday. And then someone publicly murders me. And then you're like, oh, yes, we don't need to lock the doors. Nothing's happening. It's completely normal that they were taking some precautions. They were certainly afraid with good reason. Of course, a locked door does not stop Jesus, who dramatically poofs into the room in smoking flashing lights. That's probably not true. <laughs> but I hope, it, I hope that he poofed in, not, didn't just appear. I hope that there was some kind of like flashbang. And so he's like, look at my hands, look at my sides. The disciples are overjoyed. They jump up and down with excitement. Jesus is back. Thomas wasn't there. Maybe he was, just wasn't there at all that night. Or maybe he was just late for dinner. We don't know. It doesn't say. But he shows up and they're like, we saw Jesus. And he's like, yeah, right. <laughs> I won't believe it until I see it. And then eight days later, they're together again, and then Jesus poofs into the room. And for the rest of history, we have dubbed Thomas Doubting Thomas. How would you like to be known for the rest of human history by one interaction that you had in your life? And this is not our only interaction with Thomas. Like, we're just like, oh, yes, doubting Thomas. He's not the only time that he shows up in Scripture. We see him a few chapters before in John chapter 11. So in the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was one of Jesus' closest friends. He had fallen very ill. So Lazarus' sisters sent this message to Jesus. They're like, please come. We know you can heal him. But, like, please come also. Your friend is sick. Like, come be with us. Come support us. They knew Jesus could help them. And the problem was, if Jesus goes to see Lazarus, Lazarus lives in Bethany, which is close to Jerusalem, and the religious leaders in Jerusalem were trying to get Jesus. So very dangerous situation. So he doesn't go for a couple of days. But then Lazarus dies. And Jesus finally decides to go. And his disciples try to talk him out of it. They're like, Jesus is like, all right, let's go. And they're like, mm, okay, Jesus. Here is a PowerPoint presentation on all of the cons as to why you should not go visit Lazarus. And plus, he's already dead, so what are you going to do? And you, if you were going to go, you should have gone while he was still alive. And also, people are trying, I don't know if you've noticed this, people are trying to murder you, and maybe we shouldn't go. 
But this is what John 11 says. Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you'll really believe. Let's go to him. And Thomas, nicknamed the twin, again, I just want to be like, is everyone named Thomas? Why? <laughs> Why is this tidbit in there? Were they like, Thomas, who's that guy? Oh, the twin. <laughs> now I know who he is. <laughs> so he's nicknamed the twin. He says to his fellow disciples, let's go to and die with Jesus. Does that sound like a wishy-washy, doubtful person to you? No. Thomas is actually the most resolved and most resolute of all of the disciples. He's very ominous. He's like, let's go to and die with Jesus. Jesus is like, I'm going. Thomas is like, this is dangerous, but I'm not going to try and talk him out of it. I'm so committed that my response is to just say, let's go. If death is at the end of the journey, so be it. I'd rather walk with Jesus towards death head on than walk away and secure my own safety. If we go with Jesus, even if we're going towards danger, then we're walking in the light. Anywhere away from Jesus, even if it looks like life, it's just darkness. And Thomas is not like any of us, just a one-dimensional person, okay? So he can't be pigeonholed into being just doubting Thomas for the rest of eternity, left alone among the disciples to bear, the we bear that weight for several reasons. First of all, we can understand Thomas's reluctance to believe Jesus is alive because he had actually seen his worst fear realized, right? When he said with like this grim resolve, let's go and die with Jesus, it came true. Like the crucifixion broke his heart. We tend to think of like Jesus is up here and the disciples are down here, but like they had this relationship. Thomas was his friend. Jesus was Thomas's mentor. They had been together for years building this relationship and it had ended terribly. And Thomas saw him die. It ended just the way he thought it was going to. How could he possibly believe that Jesus was alive again? He saw him die. And second, although this passage is called in your Bible, if you look it up, it's like the narrative of doubting Thomas. None of the other disciples are better than him. In fact, this tiny little paragraph repeats the one before it almost exactly. And it repeats the one before that almost exactly. So earlier, Mary Magdalene is like, the stone is rolled away. Jesus is missing. Where have they taken his body? She did not believe that Jesus was alive until Jesus said her name in the garden. And then she was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> Jesus is alive. She runs to tell the disciples and they are promptly like, no, he's not. And then Peter and another disciple, they run to the tomb. And instead of being like, oh, she's probably right. He's alive. They were like, huh. It's an interesting situation we have here. They just walk off scratching their head. They're like what? Jesus's body is missing, but we're not sure. And none of the other disciples really believe that Jesus is alive. All of them are filled with doubt until Jesus comes into their room that's locked and says, peace be with you. And these interactions are nearly the same. The one between the 11 disciples and the one between the 11 disciples plus Thomas. The door is locked. Jesus suddenly appears. He says, peace be with you. He shows them, right? The only difference is that Thomas wasn't there the first time. But he was the second time. He's not the only person doubting. Thomas didn't trust the word of the other disciples, just like they didn't trust the word of Mary. Thomas is no more skeptical than any of them. He was just late for dinner. <laughs> 
And like third, this is important. If we back up and think of the whole context of the book of John. So like the four gospels, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more interested in chronology. They're like, this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. They mostly agree. John doesn't really care about timelines. (laughs) He starts with an event at the end of Jesus's life and then goes back to the beginning and he skips all over the place. The theme in John is seeing is believing. It's repeated over and over and over again. So throughout John's gospel, the phrase come and see appears so many times. We find it in the first chapter. So Jesus meets a few people who are following John the Baptist and they're like, where are you staying? And Jesus is like, come and see. And these people become the first disciples of Jesus. And then a few verses later, Philip, one of the disciples, invites Nathaniel to meet Jesus. He's like, hey, I met this guy from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, <laughs> Nazareth? What a garbage town. It's <laughs> <This is> paraphrased. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says, come and see. And then a few chapters later, the Samaritan woman at the well runs home. She meets Jesus. She runs back to the village and she's like, there's this guy who told me everything I've ever done in my life. Could it be the Messiah? Come and see. And then Jesus arrives four days too late in Bethany, and Lazarus is dead. And Martha and Mary are there, and they're brokenhearted, and their brother has died. And he says, where have you put him? And they say, come and see. In fact, we find some form of the word see or come and see 20 times in John's gospel. Seeing means everything from like physical sight to giving this full understanding. But guess what? Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared. He literally did not see what they saw. Mary's like, I've seen the Lord. And the disciples are like, "Mm, okay, (laughs) crazy lady. (laughs) And then they see, and they're like, Thomas, we have seen the Lord. And he's like, okay, (laughs) y'all are just as nice as she is. He's skeptical just as they had been. His only fault was that he just wasn't there at the same time. And Jesus goes through the whole appearing routine, again, just for Thomas's benefit. I also think we should think about why it was so difficult for Thomas and the rest of the disciples to accept at face value what someone else said. They wanted proof, with good reason, I think. Like we're used to Easter sermons. If you've grown up in church or if you've been part of a faith community for a while, we're like, oh yeah, Jesus died, was crucified, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, uh-huh, we accept it, we're like, cool. Do you understand what a crazy thing that is to just accept? <laughs> the resurrection of Jesus was this completely earth-shattering, unpredictable, unexplainable event. Now, the Pharisees, who are that group of religious leaders in the book of John, they're this adversary for Jesus. They're fighting the whole time. They believed in the resurrection but not the resurrection of one dude in the middle of history. They believed in a resurrection at the end, a corporate resurrection one time at the end of history when everything is over. They didn't believe one guy could just come back to life. Nobody believed that, (laughs) right? That's a crazy thing to believe. Once you're dead, you mean you're pretty much dead, right? It's as impossible and fantastical to us now as it was to them. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. It won't happen. Can we blame the disciples and Thomas specifically for being like, that's not real? Thomas had seen him die, a trauma that he was going to live eternally, right? He's going to grieve that forever. 
He shouldn't be called Doubting Thomas. He should be called Reasonable Regular Thomas. <laughs> Poor Thomas has gotten such a bad rap when he's like, all of us, we would all be, if, let's say, Jared dies, sorry. I didn't know I was gonna kill you off in my sermon, but you're dead now. <laughs> and then a week later, we're like, Jared has come back to life. You would be like, well, maybe we should rethink having Hannah be full-time. <laughs> and then a couple people were like, I mean, I've seen him, though. And then you'd be like, well, this is a conspiracy. <laughs> They're all in on it together. This is some kind of elaborate April Fool's joke. We don't understand what's happening. Like, this is not possible. And yet, a week after Easter, we have this sad, tired disciple, just fragile, brittle, like he's been through so much. He's determined not to be taken in. He is standing on his human right to not believe something until he's got some evidence for it. And he's just confronted by a smiling Jesus who just walked through a closed door. And we always are like, well, Jesus appeared, you know, to shake his finger at Thomas and be like, well, why didn't you believe in me, Thomas? No, he's, he finds this smiling, gentle Jesus who says, hi, hey, here, here I am. Here's the proof you asked for. Not, here's the proof you asked for. <laughs> Come on, Thomas. <laughs> no, he said, here, here is what you need. And then Thomas says this breathtaking statement of faith, some of the most powerful words in all of John. He sees Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas is actually the first person in the book of John to look at Jesus and say, God. And this is what John has been building to from the first chapter. So John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then all through John, he's crafting this whole argument about how Jesus is God. And then we get to Thomas and Thomas looks at Jesus near the end of the whole book and says, you're God. And then Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. And we think this is a rebuke against Thomas. Oh, Thomas, you should have believed without seeing me. No, it's an encouragement for us because we haven't seen, right? <laughs> have any of you seen Jesus? I'd be interested to hear your story if you have. It's an encouragement to come to the people generations later who have not seen with their own eyes. We're all blessed when, without having seen Jesus, without having touched his hands. We still believe. And maybe when we think about this crazy, ridiculous, miraculous, unexplainable event of the resurrection, maybe this will help. The resurrection is not some alien power of God breaking into the world to disrupt everything that's going on. The resurrection is what happens when creation itself comes to heal and restore the world and put everything back to right. I feel like, to me, the resurrection is one of the most fundamental things in faith because it is the end. We always, we're like, yes, the end of sin and death. But do we really think about what that means? That we are not... This isn't the true reality. That Jesus being, going through death and coming out the other side and being transformed is actually the ultimate reality. That that's what we're aiming for. That death, when we say death has no power or death has no sting, as many hymns say, that that means something 
because that's how we're supposed to be. And too often, I think the church has presented the content of faith as unchanging and static. This kind of like just deposit, just dumped into the world. If you alter it or you question it, your soul is in peril. Right? It's easy to believe this. It's convenient to believe that the contents of faith are static and unchanging because it removes us from any responsibility to think about and wrestle with our faith. It removes us from the responsibility to own our own faith and work through things that are difficult so that we can actually hand it to other people as our loving conviction of real belief, not just this assumption of ideas. It'd be really easy for me to be like, well, here's the list of things I believe. And then that's how I would feel about it. Meh. <laughs> that was my baby. <laughs> Meh. No, like, I want to know why you believe what you believe. And Jesus tells us in John 14, 26, that the Holy Spirit, our advocate and our guide, will lead us into all truth that will be gradually revealed to us as we are able to handle it. Because we can't handle the truth. We can't handle a deposit People are like, I want to see God. Do you? The truth will be gradually revealed to us as we are able to handle it. The Spirit of God is always about the business of breaking down all these barriers that we've built. The artificial barriers that keeps us from being who God has made us to be, which is loved and accepted and affirmed and free. The process is challenging and difficult and is often resisted by us and most especially by the institutional church. Jesus walks through a closed, locked door to get to Thomas. It's not that Thomas's doubt has driven him to demand answers from Jesus and be like, Jesus, you better show up or I'm not doing this. No, Jesus is the one who's determined to reach Thomas. He's not gonna be convinced by anyone else. Thomas doesn't hear the disciples say, I've seen Jesus. And he's like, yeah, right. And he's like, well, God, if you're out there, here's what I need to, for me to change my mind. But Jesus is looking for Thomas. Whenever our doubt crowds out our hope, we can be confident that Jesus will come meet us where we are even if it's out on the farthest possible edge of our faith and we've forgotten almost entirely how to believe. What a strange thing to hold on to. A certainty that the answers to the most profound and the most desperate questions in our souls, those answers come not because we are so dedicated to seeking them, not because we're disciplined enough to find the answer, not because we work hard enough and somehow arrive at a place, it's because God comes looking for us. Stepping through all the walls we've built, stepping through all the locked doors that hardship have built around us, that difficulty has built around us, that rejection has built around us, just stepping through them, not tearing them down, just walking through them, offering love and presence to us at the very moment that grace feels like a fairy tale told by drunk people. When God comes, we get to recognize God's presence in the moments where peace is offered, in the moments 
we find God's presence in the moments where life's awfulness is honestly acknowledged. And in the middle of honesty, we realize that we're not alone. We've already been found. That's what grace is. Grace is not us being like, oh, now I, I get it now. It's part of it. But what are we getting? It's that it's always been there. That the grace that we need has always been here. That the love that we need has always been here. That the hope and the acceptance and the affirmation that God has been looking for us while we're wandering around being like, I don't know if this is true. I don't know if I can believe this. I don't know if this is, seems pointless to me. I don't know if I can believe anymore, honestly. I don't know if I ever believed to begin with. And we're just holding on to a thread of hope. Then we realize that it's been there all along, growing, that Jesus is saying, here's what you need. And blessed are you when you have faith. Not because you now can say with certainty, I know something, but because in your soul and in your spirit and in the most sacred part of who you are, you realize that the goodness has been there all along. And Jesus wants to expand it and grow it and make it better. We're not alone. We've already been found. And I guess if you're feeling some kind of way this morning, like this week has been hard or this year has been hard, that's okay. You don't have to pretend that everything's fine. Jesus will meet us in our honesty, just like he met Thomas in his honesty. Thomas was like, I don't, I don't have the ability to believe this right now. And Jesus said, but here is what you need. What do you need? Jesus is saying, here's what you need. Just take it. So we have two more songs. So I just invite you to stand as Kiana and the band sings them. And just reflect, wherever you are, just reflect, what do I need from God? What do I need? And then, instead of open, open your hands. Not literally, unless you want to. <laughs> Open your hands so that God can give you what you need. <laughs>